I think you've written a lot about getting on the same page without necessarily talking about getting on the same page. But just what are your what are your thoughts on gentelligence and getting on the same page? I think it's what happens when we get sort of moved from this idea of tension or, or mm. competition to mm-hmm. one of collaboration. So to me, it's really what we're trying to do in those second two practices mm-hmm. where it's all about shared mission, right? To the same page to me means we're both, we're all pointed in the same direction. Mm. And when we can understand that, then it allows us to kind of lower our defenses and say, Oh, well, if you're heading the same place I'm heading, then I would love to hear your idea of how to get there. Maybe my idea is not working. Right. Or I I would love to know more about your thoughts, your tools. It's less threatening to me because I'm still going to end up where I want to go. And so to me, getting on the same page is, is looking at each other in the, you know, looking in the same direction as each other. And I Mm -hmm. think, that is is so critical um, to getting on the the same page. And I, I also think it's it's sort of the the mantra of gentelligence is that every generation has something to teach and something to learn. So mm-hmm. if we just remembered that, then I don't have to know everything. And I also am more than, you know, capable or or valuable in terms of having something to teach. And I, I feel like that's the same page I would want everybody to get on and to have organizations sort of normalize that in their culture. Yeah, I like that. I like how you closed that thought there. I think what you were saying was if we if we say to ourselves and can keep foremost in our minds that we have something to offer and something to learn, right? Yep. That changes that could change interactions right there. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does, it, it affects everything, Yeah. right? Because I think one of the biggest misperceptions we have in leadership, particularly as older people, and this has been more true for older generations I've worked with, is that we somehow got the memo that we, we're supposed to know everything, right, right. right? That the older you are, the more you're supposed to know. Expertise is positively correlated with age. And, and historically, the longer you had been alive, the more you knew right? The better you were at at everything. And then when the digital age came, it upset that dynamic because suddenly for one of the first times in history on a very large scale, of course, this has happened in the past, but on a very large scale, our younger generations were inherently learning as they grew up something that we as older generations had to acquire, right? We were the digital immigrants, not the digital natives. And so suddenly Someone who's 20 is better at something than someone who's 60. Sure. Not permanently, right? That's a stereotype that older people aren't good at technology, but their engagement and interest level in it was higher. That they they had a very sort of fluid knowledge of um, digital that was not available to us who grew up when before it was was invented. And so we had to learn it, right? And anytime you have to learn something versus just naturally acquiring it as you grow up, it's obviously a different learning curve. And so we didn't quite know what to do with that. That was a lot of the angst around millennials was like, well, wait a second. Like they're supposed to have to wait to know more than we do, (laughs) or they're supposed to have to wait to be the experts. And somehow they got that before they were allowed to get it. And that's very uncomfortable and we don't like it. And, and so then we, we had this very negative, horrible, you know, diatribe around shaming and blaming them because 
you know, who are you to think you know things that we don't know, even though they did. And it was just this storm of, of, of angst and negativity. Yeah, it was tension. And yeah. step, it was tension. And, you know, Gen Z, I think, sort of saw it. And, and I honestly think OK Boomer is, was sort of their proactive, like, you're not doing that to us. To me, yeah, right. But That's also good. not... You know, I wrote a piece for NBC on this uh, last year or the year before. Maybe it's been longer than that. The last few years have been a blur. (laughs) But um, it's, you know, it was about the fact that, like, I completely understand OK Boomer, but that's not gentelligent either, right? Because you're you're sort of saying, I have nothing to learn from you. I'm going to put my hands over my ears and I'm not interested in your It could be dismissive, yeah. Yeah, right. And, And that's not right either. But I think... If you if we all could get on the same page per your question about the fact that I'm comfortable knowing that I have something I can learn and something I can teach and that learning can happen like with that. people older or younger, that's a very reachable place to it me. Really I don't is. think like you said, it's it's not hard. It's not No, you know, it's not very technical about it. To, no, it, it really isn't. But it's one of those things where, you know, one of our reviewers said this, this is the missing link. Like, why haven't we talked about this or brought this out into the open and tried to figure out how to be better at this? And I, I just think it's a matter of, you know, if you're very confident, it's easier to internalize the idea that you always have something to learn. And of course, you're able to teach people. I, I think point. you have to feel you have to feel secure and you have to feel content and confident in your organization or in yourself. And when when people aren't feeling that way, I think it, often it's because their organization maybe has given them reason to feel insecure. So, like, I think about our, our baby yeah, boomers right now. You know, I'm hearing from a lot of people who say. I was displaced or I quit or I got an early retirement or, you know, a a severance package during the pandemic. I want to work. I'm healthy. I have a lot more to give. I can't get an interview because of my age or whether it's blatant or, you know, more implicit bias, getting messages that, you know, a company doesn't want them to come work because, you know, they're older and how many more years could they possibly have? And so, you know, when you're getting messages like that, or you're working at a place that you feel like it sort of puts you on that off ramp, you know, you don't feel valued, you don't feel important. Not at and, all. and it's hard for you to be like, I I have something to learn from a younger generation, because you're, you're feeling threat. And when we feel threat, we're not going to open, you know, I always open up. psychological safety is sort of like, the ability to want to share your toys with other people and i'm not sharing my toys with you if i think you're going to steal them right, or right. jump up and down on them right. and so you have to make people feel like hey we see you we find you valuable we respect what you're bringing and then they can get to that place of feeling like they have something to, to absolutely. learn and teach i think absolutely and let's talk about that in terms of culture but i really like that notion of offer have something to offer and learn and a same page about that. I, I got to think about that some more. I like the three, what'd you call them? Legs of a stool. Layers. Layers of. Yeah, layers of culture. What we believe. Yeah. What we see. And then what we do. I'm sorry. What we believe, what we say. And then the third one was what we do and see. So we pulled that from um, Shine's work in organizational culture, which is very classic foundational work in organizational culture. And Shine talks about the layers of culture being artifacts, 
So what, what we see values. So our, our espoused values, what right. we say, what right. we say we care about, and then our underlying assumptions. So what we actually care about, you know, sort of our fundamental beliefs. And so our adaptation of that really was gotcha. in a culture, what messages are people internalizing? And in it's sort of like if you think about Lou traveling to again, another right. culture, the first thing you're going to take in is what you see, right? What, you know, what does the workplace look like? You know, our, yeah. our senior leadership behind big, big, heavy oak doors versus open floor plan versus whatever, you know, foosball table and bean bags or whatever people are seeing that we think speak to a certain demographic or generation. You know, we saw this a lot maybe in the decade ago when we were seeing everyone try to capture the millennials with their cool, hip yep. workplaces, right? right? right, right. And, and we thought that was what was going to be appealing. And so we went with those sort of seeing those artifacts. And then what we hear, right, this idea of, of what we say we care about. So yeah. really interestingly, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm working with a um, former student of mine to gather data on Fortune 100 diversity practices. Because when we were writing our book, we found a uh, study that basically said that only 8% of organizations have age in their DE&I strategy. And we thought, oh, that's so low. Like, how is that even possible? Hmm. And so it was from a while ago, though. It was from 2014, but it was the most recent one we could find. And so I've, I've seen sort of updates on it, but nothing that I felt like was really that reliable. And so we're kind of combing slowly through, you know, whatever's available. Not everything is available. But it's so fascinating because most places don't mention age on their DEI websites. But if they do, it's like as a a one word in between all other kinds of difference. And and very few of these companies actually seem to have any plan around it. Sure. So you might say we value people of all ages, you know, races, genders, exactly. all of those things. Exactly. But then that's what you say, mm -hmm. right? Then what do we see? Do we see that the mean age at our workplace is 32? Well, then I don't really believe you, right? That doesn't feel very authentic if right. you say you value age, but, you right. know, clearly people aren't sticking around right. much after, you know, their mid-30s. And then yeah. that, that fundamental assumption, what do we believe? Well, that gives root to everything else. If we believe there's a power in age diversity, then when we say that on our website, is it a reflected in what you see around you, right? It's, right. All, it's okay. all connected. Gotcha, okay. I'll offer this to you. It's a, another working definition of organizational culture that I use, which is a shared rationale for why, how we spend our time and our talent the way we do and not some other way. The idea is a shared rationale for why we do what we do, but not something else. And that cuts in many ways across organizations, right? It could be, it could be by levels of organization, but it doesn't have to be. It could be by roles that could be spread across an organization. There, there's a mindset sort of of lawyers have in an organization to protect against risk. And there's a mindset that an entrepreneur or, a, you know, if there's an innovation unit in the organization to try to take some chances. There's a, there's a shared rationale among some people about why they do what they do and not something else. And it's probably clearer to them maybe than to others. I think they probably talk about it amongst themselves. Things could be implicit. Maybe it's just more explicit amongst a, a, a group of people who are sharing a rationale. But I thought about that when I read Quit Your Bar with Machine, what we those three layers. 
I think that if I did a lot of government consulting and it was always widely thought that truthfully that organizational culture is hard to change, but I'm not sure I saw a lot of people try to go about it the way I think it would produce change. I didn't see the kind of conversations about it that we're having, not that someone replicate our conversation, but that they talked about these kinds of things, that they talked about the difference between espoused and enacted values, that they talked about aspirations and then looked at constraints on people that came from the HR system, formal and informal reward systems, right? Where, where there's differences between what we hope to be and do and what we actually be and do, are and do, and for legitimate reasons. There's no criticism about that, but talk about it. If you don't talk about it openly, you never change it. Um, if you talk about it more openly, you might find some things you can change and some things that are hard to change. I saw leaders mostly try to change culture by articulating what they want, the aspiration, what they wanted the culture to be, and believing they were providing cover for people to take chances and risks in moving in that direction. But they didn't really account for the realities of people's jobs and constraints on people, the reasons why people did what they did and not, and not something else. And the other chapter that kind of goes with the culture chapter was the people strategy. You covered a lot of ground, you and your, and your colleagues, Megan, your co-authors covered a lot of ground from concepts to thing, like structure and framework of things to do from things to say to notions like culture and, and people strategy, which are grand in an organization, but you broke them down. Like, who will your talent be? What will they need to, to stay committed? When and where will they work? Why will they work? Right, those are just great questions to ask, to have a conversation about, to hear how people from different generations in your organization answer them, or to hear how people from different parts of the organization answer them, different roles, right? You don't know where your different points of view and perspectives are going to come from, but they're there. So you can be hidden from you, or you could surface them. And I think that, I think that these kinds of uh, questions uh, and, and, the, and the sort of the structure or process you put in some of these chapters for things to do really ought to be effective at surfacing those conversations and those, what's on people's minds and hearts. Yeah, I think with the people strategies, you know, they're like you said, if, if, at the very least, it's a, it's a conversation point to have around, as we talked about, return to work. Where do people want to work? There aren't necessarily the generational divides on that that we would think research isn't supporting that, but it, it's an interesting conversation to have, even if to dispel sure. the fact that there are, you know, I saw all kinds of articles and got all kinds of questions about is it true Gen Z doesn't want to go into an office. Is it true baby boomers can't wait to go back? And it's like, <laughs> well, no, none of that's really true, but, but what, where, you know, where are their interesting differences? And then even things like, you know, another practical tool when it comes to, to people strategy taking a look at your job postings, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're in the middle of the great resignation or the talent shortage or whatever, whatever wave we're in at this very minute, it's hard to keep track. Looking at your job posting and seeing whether a critical eye would reveal that you're somehow signaling that really you do have a preference for a particular sure. age of employees. So whether it's the fact that for as long as anyone can remember, your job posting for a particular role has said five to seven years experience preferred. 
right? That is a very odd, I see that a lot, particularly mm-hmm. with HR jobs, mm-hmm. because my students, a lot of them go into HR. And even for entry level roles, there'll be this odd five to seven years experience. And so they normally don't apply for those because they think, oh, I, they don't want us. And then five to seven years also sort of signals to older people that that's not a role for them. Because they might think, well, I have 27 years. Like maybe this is way below what I'm looking for. But if you ask someone in the organization, what, how did you come up with five to seven years? I would guess 95% of the time they have no idea. They didn't write that job description. Exactly. They just cut and paste from the last one. Or sometimes it'll say like, um, a major or a GPA, which I can't remember what my GPA was. So if I was back on the job market and I saw an ad that was looking for, you know, accounting and finance majors preferred, I would think, oh, this is uh, this is for a college student who's graduating or anything like that, right? Like, what are you signaling that maybe you don't intend to or don't necessarily need to because it's an artifact that maybe, we've just yeah. always included that. Maybe you don't even know you're signaling something. If you uh, look at job postings, there's so many mismatches between them. One common requirement is that as a some kind of number of years experience. If you look closely, you might think that some of the law, sometimes I see such a long list of um, responsibilities. Like, well, mm-hmm. that's not a recipe for success right there. No one can do 23 things in one job and be good at the job. That could be a mismatch with years of experience because I'm not looking at something that says 25 plus years and can do all these things. And looking at something that's like 10 or 12 years and do all these things. And then sometimes it's interesting what's happened to titles, Megan, because I see in some government consulting I still do. Resumes are a very important part of certain bidding on certain contracts. And sometimes the titles that are given out in organizations, VP is given out a lot anymore. There's a lot of VPs in organizations, not even very large organizations, where large organizations could have a whole structure of VPs. And, and you can look at it and go, they're looking for someone with, who's 30, 32, who's going to be a VP, and of all this responsibility, and you're thinking, that doesn't quite add up right in my mind. You're raising a great question. Who knows what's intended? But I'm looking at some of these things thinking, I don't know that that's what the HR department, I don't know if they think, if what is being, how it's being read is what they think they're saying <laughs> or what they meant to say. Well, and that would be a good, whether it's a focus group conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And even think about, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up. So what assumptions do we have about a VP, right? So obviously those of us who grew up a while ago thinking <laughs> VP, like you can't be a VP. Take some time to there. get there, right, right? Right? Like I, I'm calling you out, Lou. I can hear you be like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like a VP when you're 30, like what is that, right? And so it could go a couple of different ways. We don't know. One, it could be are we manufacturing titles? I, I right. advised for an organization a while ago where everybody was the the head or chair of something and nobody wasn't. And I'm like, well, what what does that mean when everyone is the chair of something? Like right. then then who's doing the work of the you know, people on the committee or right. you know, what does being chair mean anything if everyone is a chair, you know, sort right. of a question. So so there's that. Is there's that, that the, yeah. is that the new iteration of the trophy? Everyone gets a trophy. 
right? Hey, we can just make everyone a VP because maybe we can't pay them more. But if I call you a VP, that's worth something, some cachet, right? Like, right? I mean, there's probably an article in that. Like, it's it's the it's the the mid middle management version of of everyone gets a trophy. Everyone is now a vice president. <laughs> right. Like, there's you'll see an article for me on that probably coming up. But there's that. But then there's also this idea of what's the value of having if I'm 45 and my I decide and I'm the president, what if I want a vice president who's 25? Because I think there's this great intelligent potential. Like I co-authored my book with two former students of mine mm -hmm. who are millennials. I think they're they'll probably call me and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, 27, I think something like that now. And I got a lot of questions like, well, that's really nice of you. Why, why did, you know, why would you have them? And, and I will tell you when we started, I thought, oh, this will be a great learning opportunity for them. Like I did it from this sort of kindly place of mentoring and development, but like the, the joke was on me. Like they, they taught me a ton. Like the book was so much better. Mm -hmm. Like originally they were going to just contribute, right? It was, they were going to necessarily be authors and they, they gave so much and made, so much better through their perspective and sort of challenging some of the assumptions that's, I had yeah, going great. in yeah. that of course I had to, to give them, you know, authorship. And so is there a value in a 30 year old vice president because we want someone to collaborate with, with, with a different perspective or, and, or are we just giving out those titles willy-nilly and they don't mean what well, they used to mean i don't know good point you have to look into that right well that's a good point it depends on the aim right it depends on the objective right. and you're right. aligning means and ends and you're right it could go a couple different ways and one way could be unproductive and one way could be very productive we've covered a lot megan um, we have yes i like i like the book a lot and I've, I've i've seen other things you did on you know other other podcasts oh, that's how i first came across you as a podcast and some of your uh, things on YouTube. So I love the frankly put thing the, the, in your book. Remember the, the letter, the email? Yes. I really did. And, and you that know. That was a real letter, Lou. That was a real letter I got. But, you know, Megan, I read it like, because you, you opened it up by saying the most negative comment you got. And I read it a couple of times and I thought, that's not that negative. And then, you know, then you followed it on with your reaction to it. I just thought that it was very telling. It was almost like, Whoever that uh, whoever that was thought they were being <laughs> like they thought they were being critical but couldn't like they they couldn't get it out in a in a critical I didn't take it in a critical way I thought that it was more revealing about them than it was about what you had written. Well, I did too. You know, it was really somebody who was sort of saying, "What could I possibly have to learn from someone younger like you, silly girl?" Was sort of like the you know the tone and that was know, the implication. Me, I thought, perfect, right? Like perfect. You just proved my point because, and I get that not not infrequently, you know, and it's always sort of the person standing at the back of the room with their hands in their pockets. Like, I, I just don't see why you think they can teach me anything. And it's like, exactly, right? Exactly. Then, then that's where we start because you really don't understand how this could even be possible. And that's very different, Lou, than you saying, this totally makes sense. It's not hard. It's not that difficult. We're not that far away from it. Everyone can do this. If, Right. If you actually do fundamentally believe that we all have something to teach and something to learn, then right. It's not hard well, at all. Know, it's just a matter of, of doing it. You know, the the organization most traditionally associated with command and control is the military. You have rank. It's your privilege to give an order. 
There are so many people I've worked with in government consulting who came out of the military. And so many of them would say, that's just not how we do it. You can. And in certain situations, you should. In so much else that didn't have to do with combat, I asked a colonel, one retired colonel, about it one time, having the right and the responsibility to give an order. I said, is that a good or bad way to get something done? Megan, I'm more of a team project kind of activity. He said, that's the worst way to get something done. So the military had come up with, for a long time now, commander's intent, which you probably know about or have heard of, and the idea of the commander articulating what the mission will be, the objectives, and, and how success would be measured, the what and the why, and letting the team, whatever that unit is, figure out the how. And you alluded to that, um, something we were talking about almost, you know, very early in, yes. in, in our conversation. And then there's a particular one that you, if, you, if you're interested in this, you should look up. A guy named David Marquette, who has retired from the Navy and has uh, his own consulting practice doing basically commander's intent, but what he calls intent-based leadership. And he tells a hysterical story, how he came up with this notion, where he was, he studied for a year to take command of a ship. And shortly before he took command of it, they switched ships on him. And he literally knew nothing about the ship that he was getting on to take command of at that time. And he tells the story first of giving a command about steering or speed that couldn't be followed because there wasn't a setting for it. And he repeats the command a couple times. And then he asks the young man sitting at the controls, why aren't you doing what I said? And he said, because, sir, there's, there's no three-quarter power. He didn't know the ship. And he tells the story of talking to his, his leadership team of an inspection coming up and what were they going to do? And they got back to him and said, we thought about it and we, we think we have the answer we think that you should just shut up. And he says, but commanders don't shut up. It's not what we do. We talk, we direct, we give orders, we give instructions. He said, I thought about it and I realized they were right. I didn't know enough to pass the inspection and they did. And it led him to think, rethinking how he gave orders, all except for the order to fire a weapon. He stopped giving orders, Megan. He stopped saying, what do you think we should do? Why that? what might go right, what might go wrong. He completely changed the conversation with his immediate leadership team and engaged them in a completely different way. Then they cascaded that down, according to the story he tells it, like got to the engine room where guys were now having different conversations about everything they did and understanding how it increased their understanding of how things were connected, of how an action they took was going to impact something or be impacted by something. And they were exchanging information about that when they were never... Those were never conversations that they had. If you follow an order, you don't have to have that conversation. You just turn around and do what you were told. But if you're being asked, we need to be somewhere by a certain time, or we need to accomplish a certain objective, how do you think we ought to do it? And the people who are involved in that, even in layers, start having different conversations about their piece of it. So much more information surfaces. So much more information is processed by people. And he said in, in, inside of a year, the entire ship was working that way. And the following year, they went from being one of the worst in the Navy to the uh, uh, inspection to being the first in the Navy. Wow. And it's these kinds of things that, like you said it a second ago, which let me think of David Marquette. You said, if you fundamentally believe that people have things to contribute and learn, then there are ways to get at that. If you don't. You won't. Yeah. What are you working on next? So my next book is going to be 
on how to integrate age into your DE&I strategy. So I just sort of um, not entirely different, obviously, but just focused on that. Yeah, with the Harvard piece, they very much wanted it to be titled around age versus generations, which obviously connected, but different. And in, in sort of getting the word out on that, one of my assistants said, no one's really got their, their teeth into the age diversity space. You know, the generations, there's lots of stuff buzzing around there, but you get a different audience in the conversation when you're talking about age diversity. Interesting. Maybe, pe- maybe people who feel disconnected or stereotyped by the generational conversation are interested in the age conversation. So I, I'm wow. trying to figure out, yeah, I've been, I've been reaching out to hopefully talk with some organizations who are doing this really well, because I get a lot of questions like, who's got this figured out? And so I've been trying to really connect to do some interviews there, looking at how age is looked at in, in the workplace around the world is really interesting. I mm-hmm. want to incorporate that into the book. So that's my next book project, probably long term, but I'm going to take my time on it because I love I love writing. So that's what's next. I think. Well, you said this one was phenomenally challenging. What, what did you mean by that? It was the hardest thing. I mean, that, I said that before I wrote the Harvard Business Review article, which might have been harder. Um, <laughs> OK, sure. only because it was it was a lot of pressure, as you would imagine. There's a lot of eyes on that. It was hard. And I think it was hard because hard in an amazing way because I learned a lot. Sure. Like there was, we were constantly hitting things where I thought, is that right? Do we understand sure. it? What else sure. do we need to find to understand this? There's so much that goes into writing a book that I didn't realize. Right. Like, and, and, and if I want to just write an academic book, that would sure. be easy because I mean, anybody will let me write an academic book, but nobody will read it. That's the problem. <laughs> so I wanted something, you know, I kept saying broad I appeal. airport. Yeah, an airport bookstore book where you would grab as you're going to catch a plane. Right, that was my goal. And so, how do you do that in a way that does justice to the research and is well supported, so the smart people who are in the know about the research read it and go, "Yeah, that's good." But then the smart business people who are out there doing it every day don't say, "Well, what the hell does she know? She's an academic, right?" Like, how do you keep your foot on both sides of that? was this great challenge. I bet it was. I loved it. It was, it was, it was phenomenally rewarding, but it was very difficult. I'm sure it was. Like just to get it right. Like how much is too much? Like what's missing? Is it clever? Is it interesting? Is it, you know, it, it it was just, it was great. It was very hard. Well, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I do a lot of reading. Seriously. I do a lot of reading of books like yours. I do some reading of journals. I think you nailed the sweet spot of applicable research. A lot of what I read explains what and why very well. Some of it explains some how, but there's levels and layers of how. And I think for business leaders, including government organizational leaders, they read something and have to figure out, I like this. I think I could use this. Where do I I go in on Monday? Where do I start? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And you, you don't leave them asking. You didn't leave me asking that that question. So you took it from things that were conceptual to things that were very actionable, which is actually the first thing I said about your post two months ago. I said, this is very actionable stuff. I was just sharing it. And that was the word I used. Now on the book, you also covered a lot of sort of laterally, a lot of territory from things about generations to 
the framework. And then you, when you went on into the people strategy and culture, you covered a lot of ground. You gave yourself a big challenge to write to a lot of things. Uh, yeah, it was quite the, you know, it's so funny. My agent, when we started and I, you know, I gave her the proposal and she said, can you really write like nine or 10 <laughs> chapters on this? I was like, I bet I could. And that was one of the big lessons I learned though. Like if you're going to write a book, you better love it and have a lot to say because, you know, there's a lot to dig into. And then it's a question of, you know, like you said, how much is too much ground to cover versus, yeah, people would want to hear more on this and where do you stop? And I love all of that. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I think you did a great job. I'm a big fan. And, you know, I've talked about it on LinkedIn. It's where we met. I think you've, you, you and, your, and your colleagues have done some great stuff and I hope you do very well with it. Thank you. Appreciate Appreciate you helping me uh, spread the word for sure. Absolutely. Thank you for your time and all your thoughts on this. It's great stuff. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. You bet, of course. Thanks, thanks, thanks Megan. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's how we see it, my friends. I want to thank Megan for recording today's episode. You can find it at iseewhatyoumean.castos.com, plus all the usual places. Send questions and suggestions through your app. Subscribe and give me a five-star rating unless you can't, in which case, let me know why. And join me next week when we take another look at how to get on the same page and stay there. Unless we shouldn't.